Hello and welcome to IntrepidTimes.com. This is Nathan Thomas. In the latest interview, I spoke to Colin Wright. He is the author of My Exile Lifestyle, as well as several other books, which boasts a readership of over 2 million people around the world. Based on the votes of his audience, Colin Wright moves to different cities and countries around the world and has had the privilege to live on several different continents. When we caught up, I was in Australia and he was in the United States. And we spoke about his travels in India, Argentina, Europe and beyond, as well as his approach to finding yourself a complete stranger in a new destination and making the most out of it. So you've been traveling for what, about six years now since you abandoned your home in L.A.? Yeah, it's been, uh, nearly seven. I think it'll be at the end of August, it will be seven years. And has this whole time been this process where your readers, your blog readers vote on where they want you to live next? That's been the standard framework, yeah. In in between, though, and I find increasingly I've been doing this, I've been kind of choosing my own adventure in between having my readers choose. So I'll, do, uh, I'll tally the votes and go live in a place for three or four or five months. And then in between, then I'll do a road trip somewhere or I'll, uh, I just got back from a trip around Europe and I visited 20 some odd uh, countries in a matter of a couple of months. So trying to get a little bit of variety and then periodically stopping to take care of business things. But typically the, the reader's voting is the framework that everything else orbits around. So you're not totally at, at the mercy of your blog readers. That's good to hear. <laughs> only part of the time. Only part of the time am I at their mercy. So where have they sent you to so far? Argentina, New Zealand, Iceland, Mumbai? Uh, Thailand. Uh, not Mumbai. I was in Calcutta. Um, I was, let's see, gosh, where else did I go? I lived in Czech Republic. I lived in Romania. I lived in Iceland a couple of times. They, they only sent me there once, but I, I went back for a couple of winters after that. Um, gosh, it's hard to even remember now. I find this happening more and more. The, the longer I travel, like each individual location um, seems like its own lifetime. And so you, you almost have to revisit, almost like revisiting grades when you were in school. And the further on you go, the harder it is to remember what happened where and at what point you went. And I had somebody interview me for like Forbes or something a couple of years ago. And they were telling me where I had been in what timeline. And that was like the first time I had strung it all together in something like the five years that I'd been traveling. I just, each place is its own isolated adventure and putting it together like that. It's not how I organize the experiences in my own mind. Sure. And you're kind of a different person in each place, right? Yeah. Yeah. By, by necessity. And also because of how you've changed based on what you've learned there and in the last place where you were living. I find time stretches when you travel. As you're saying, it seems almost like a different lifetime everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is it's pure theory, but it's uh, some of it's a little bit backed up by, by some of the science that's coming out on the subject that when you are in unfamiliar circumstances, then everything is a potential threat or opportunity. And as a result, your brain is, stays on more because it's looking for threats and opportunities. So you're paying more attention and as a result you have more stimuli to store as memories and to return to later. Whereas if you are in a familiar place, you tend to automate in order to save resources. In case there are threats and opportunities later, you've got more energy saved up to you know, fight or flight. And uh, so if you, go, if you live in the same place for too long or have the same routines for too long, a lot of that time is kind of automated away into obscurity by your own brain. And you find yourself driving to work and then you, you kind of 
come become aware at the parking lot of your office and can't remember quite how you got there, but you got there because you do the same thing every day and you just you don't store that information quite as assiduously as you would if it was a, a new location. So has it been a conscious goal of yours to avoid falling into that pattern? Yeah, very much so. Uh, and not just not to avoid the automation thing. That was something I kind of realized later, but I did realize that one thing that I enjoy, one consistent thing between all of the different activities and, and work that I pursue is the pursuit of new opportunities and experiences and really the ability to challenge myself constantly and consistently. And I find if I do the same thing the same way for too long, not only does it become a little bit easy, which is something that we are kind of supposed to want, I think, but it becomes a bit boring and I start to feel a little bit slow and like my life, I, I move through it a little bit more lugubriously, like unenthusiastically. And it, it's not the desire for novelty, I think. It's the desire for what comes with that novelty, which is being able to see the world as this thing that offers up um, all of these new opportunities to to push up against difficult challenges and to challenge oneself and to find one's limits and to see what's out there. So after you mentioned almost seven years on the road now, you must be quite a confident traveler. You know how to find a home, learn a bit of a language, make local friends. Is there still challenge in that? Is there still something that really stimulates you? Yeah, yeah. Certain elements of it more than others. But I, I still find myself things that you would think I would have down pat by now. Uh, I still find myself doing in the most idiotic way sometimes just because it's a slightly different experience every place that you go. Um, but but I did a trip around Europe recently where I visited uh, a bunch of different countries in a short period of time. That's new to me. Like I, I more typically stay in a place for at least a couple of weeks, but usually more like several months. And so my uh, the the way in which I learn a new culture is a very slow plodding process. And so this uh, wandering into a country or a city for just a couple of days that's a completely new weird thing to me. And so I have no idea how to do it. And so I felt it was something that I needed to do. And so things like that, if I find myself um, falling into too much routine or rhythm, say like going to a country for four months, um, then I can change it up and get a similar experience, but with a very different outcome and very different skills and very different takeaways, uh, really uh, required and resulting from the what's essentially the same thing. How was that Europe trip? Did anywhere in particular stand out for you? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, several places that – there were a few places that I had nothing to go on. So like Slovenia, I, I didn't know anything about. And Ljubljana was just gorgeous. Uh, but then other places that I didn't th- – really think I would like. I, I had this expectation that like Amsterdam was a place where people went to get stoned and it's not my thing. So I'm thinking, okay, it'll just be a, it'll be like Berkeley. It'll be kind of a hippie kingdom, but it was just such a pleasant place, just a really gorgeous, pleasant city. Uh, so I had a lot of those types of moments where in some cases my expectations, uh, like Sarajevo was the same way, where there's just some really gorgeous, wonderful things there. Uh, expectations blown out of the water and then most of the cases were more just me filling in gaps of my knowledge. It's crazy when you're doing that kind of 20 country hike across Europe. And it's certainly a lot of thing, a thing a lot of Kiwis uh, tend to do this sort of marathon. Mm. You wake up and you kind of have to remember, okay, what country am I in today? And then 
you think, right, I want to go into the store to buy something. What, what hello am I using? What's the local, <laughs> what's, what's the currency? Right, right. Yeah, it's difficult. In some ways, it's easier now than it's ever been because of the the digital economy, the ability to use Airbnb and Uber. And uh, like if you wanted to, you can go into most of these places and never handle the local currency. But then, of course, you miss out on a lot of, of what goes on at street level when you just participate as a complete uh, – uh, just on the tourist track as opposed to trying to see something that falls outside of that. Do you tend to have a crack at the uh, the local languages? Oh God, I try. I really do, and and it's actually I found that's something that's improved over the years, along okay. with just traveling in general, is that I've gotten better at picking up uh, accents like the inflections and the rhythms of languages, and as a result, I've gotten a little more confident uh, speaking them relatively quickly after I learn the vocabulary. But it, it's not something that comes naturally to me. I. I know people who walk into a new country and suddenly they can converse with somebody else about philosophy and God knows how they do that. It takes me a very long time. It's like learning to play guitar is the same way. It takes me ages to learn to play a song. And once I've got it, I've got it, but it takes me ages. And it's the same with a language where I, over the years I've, I've picked up decent Spanish finally, but it took me ages to be able to have a, a halfway def- decent conversation with any type of grammar structure. So you lived in um, Spanish-speaking countries. You lived in Argentina, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I, I traveled around South America for a bit after that. Cool. I find language, like I also struggle a lot with them. Once you can get to the point where at least you can order the local food in that language, I find you feel a lot less like a complete alien, a lot less like an outsider. Yeah. Yeah, well, and once you have those keys, the the ordering food, ordering coffee, being able to say hello, yes, no, please, thank you, sorry, uh, things like yeah, being able to say yeah and whatever the local colloquial slang is for that is really helpful. And then, yeah, just the pronunciation of street names and things. Like I, I still can't speak Icelandic worth a damn, but I can pronounce it really well. And so I can read all the signs and I can pronounce things and go through the basic, um, the, the basic conversational niceties that you'll have with people day to day. And if you can do that, that's like 85% of what you're going to need for most of the time that you're there. Exactly. That's immediately sets you apart from most of the tourists, unless you're kind of somewhere like France where they expect you to be fluent in French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's God, that's a difficult language on multiple levels. And and there's so many different accents and, and slight dialects of that too. So it's it's a lot of different expectations to live up to. Did you make it I'm asking because I used to live there, did you make it to Poland? I did, yeah. I went through Warsaw. Okay which I understand is a very different experience from a lot of the other major cities there. Yeah, I used to live in Poznan, which is a lot, much smaller city, much fewer tourists. And you're speaking about languages and pronunciation. A year living there, studying the language, I could almost pronounce it enough that a very patient local person could probably understand <laughs> me if they were in a good mood. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a difficult one. That's something yeah. to assign extra time for. Really tricky. So... Iceland's a place you said you'd lived in once because your readers told you to go there and then again because you went there voluntarily. Yeah, two two other times actually uh, to go there voluntarily. I I was dating somebody from there for a while for over the course of several years and she traveled with me for a bit. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's nice too because then there's something really, really 
um, pleasant about playing house every once in a while when sure. you and the person that you're seeing both enjoy your independence and have your own lives and things that you're doing, but also can come together from time to time for like four or five months and enjoy each other's company and live together and, and do that thing. It's, it's nice to have that uh, diversity of experience. You mentioned how Iceland was in the process of transitioning itself from a local economy into a tourist economy. Does it change your experience as a traveler there? Yeah, yeah, it really does. It's changed quite dramatically since the first time that I went there. Uh, Unfortunately, I mean, it's fortunate for a lot of the people who are benefiting from that tourist trade. And I would never, you know, criticize uh, people for wanting to make that money and for doing that really, like if the alternative is selling off that, you know, all of the land that they have for development and mining the minerals and things like that, like a lot of other countries have done. I, I know New Zealand's had some issues with that where different political uh, influences want to sell off the mountains, essentially, and others want to keep them intact and just, you know, sell uh, tickets to tourists instead. Uh, I think that's definitely the superior option in most cases. But when you live in a place for several months, as opposed to visiting uh, quickly, when you rent an apartment and you have your grocery store at the corner of the street, and um, then you start to see it from that standpoint of, I suddenly can't get things and I live here. I cannot find a hardware store. I cannot get a light bulb. Um, but there's all these different stores that will sell me Viking helmets. Like it's, it, it becomes like a tchotchke economy. And that's really unfortunate for the people who kind of make those cool hot spots that become tourist areas that made them cool to begin with. Um, it sucks for them because they end up having to move or become a part of that tourist economy. And that process is constantly going on in big cities, places like London sort of become touristified. The tourists move in, it loses its local charm. So the locals move out, create another place which becomes cool. So the tourists come in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's kind of the same as like what happened in, in San Francisco, Silicon Valley thing. Uh, there it was tech companies, but the, the same thing happens with with the tourist economy, where it becomes so homogenized in terms of how people make their money that it's really wonderful for that one thing, but everything else suffers as a result. And and I don't know what the solution is to it, honestly. Like it's something that's very easy to criticize, but because it is, there's so many sides to the argument, it's also difficult to come up with a solution that doesn't ignore the benefits of the, the opposing argument. Absolutely. And especially for people like you and I who spend a lot of our lives uh, as tourists, although we probably wouldn't want to admit it, we're kind of part of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there's certainly benefits to it. And although I wouldn't miss it in the places where I stay for several months, I have to admit, I got to see a lot more and do a lot more in these European countries I visited recently, um, because the infrastructure was there. And that enabled me to get the most out of my couple of days that I was in these cities. Right. And you need actually things to tidy up things to become a bit more normal, just so you can get from A to B. Yeah, ideally. I mean, it's, I I had to, I dodged past a couple um, Balkan countries that I wanted to go to, but I couldn't because the overland infrastructure was not as such that I could get a predictable route through them into the next country within the time period that I had allotted. And so I found myself kind of limited to places that I could plot out a path, a reliable path through. And so as a result, the the places that didn't have the the right infrastructure for that, uh, I had to bypass and not not spend money there. Um, whether they care or not is irrelevant. The fact is that 
because of those choices or because of just the circumstances of not being able to invest in it, they do miss out on a lot of a certain type of income, at least, that, that other countries are benefiting from. And the, the, the battle for reliable infrastructure is a huge one in Asia. You recently wrote your latest book, Comeback Freight, about the Philippines. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. God, such a such a lovely country and such okay. a... Uh, I was very fortunate to get to see the the different perspectives of it that I did. So when were you there? Was that recently? Yeah, it was the end of last year. Okay. So fairly recent. And was this a destination chosen by yourself or by your audience? It was chosen by my audience. Okay. And you were there for how long? Uh, I was only there for a little over two months. Okay. I, I mixed it up because I had... A, a speaking engagement and a couple of other things I had to rush back for, but I found that if if I made it kind of a, an anomaly in my system, and instead of going for four months, I would go for a little over two months and stay at two radically different places, then I could still have kind of an interesting experience and and learn quite a bit, get a little bit more breadth to my knowledge rather than just depth. Sure. Which were the places that you lived in? I lived in a place called Mayuyao. Uh, which is up in the middle of nowhere in the Ifugao region, just rice terraces and uh, three hours from reliable internet and electricity. And uh, and then in Barakai, which is the polar opposite. It's like a resort town where you go on your honeymoon. Sure. And um, your book, Comeback Freight, is a travel narrative based on that. Yeah, yeah. Or, or as, as I usually tell people, because I'm not really a travel writer, I'm a writer who travels. Sure. It's more that I tell stories and then use those stories as an excuse to talk about other things. It's interesting that you mentioned the writer who travels distinction, because this is something that a lot of travel writers or people who would be labeled as travel writers say as well. Um, Peter Hessler, who I interviewed recently, uh, Colin Thubron, other well-known travel writers always say that they are writers first and travelers second. Mm, that's good. Okay. I'm glad I'm not alone with that. <laughs> no, absolutely. The argument uh, Peter Hessler put to me when I spoke to him was, um, in his opinion, and I think I probably agree, it's actually a lot easier to travel, to uh, get a passport, to go from A to B, to pick up the local language, than it is to write about it in an interesting and perceptive way. Mm, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. It's It's difficult because the uh, the distinction I tend to make and the the reason I, I tend to say that about being a writer who travels, not a travel writer, is that the way I usually look at it is that travel writing is going into a place and saying, here is this place that I went to. Here's the restaurant that I ate at. Here's a place you should check out. Here's a cool local artist. And there's immense value to that type of writing. Uh, but I don't find it terribly interesting for me because I, I would rather go and see and get it from my own point of view, get it from my own perception. And so I, I do very little research before I go to places as a result because I want to get an unbiased uh, view of a place when I finally do show up. Uh, and then it gives me the excuse to write about whatever the hell. I can tell a travel story if I want, but I can also write essays. I, I write fiction, science fiction, short story collections, whatever, uh, that has very little to do, if anything, with the place that I happen to be. So the travel experiences are largely, I don't know, sort of triggers for you for these uh, philosophical ideas, the connections you draw from them. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're definitely informed. The the stuff that I write is definitely informed by the experiences that I have, but not not in a one to one way. Where I'm, you know, I, I wrote a book about the Philippines while I was in the Philippines, but that was an excuse to talk about a lot of the parallels that I saw there, uh, along with the other things that I've seen elsewhere. Whereas I, I might write a, a novel. Uh, I'm I'm in the middle of a novel right now that I'm writing that has nothing to do with any place that I've been. But some of the characters are informed by people that I've met and some of the locations are informed by places that I've been. And so every single thing that we do informs the work that we do and the wider variety, uh, you, of the wider the palette of experiences you can have to draw upon. Uh, I think the, the more round your characters will be and the more intricate your plots will be and so on. Absolutely. When you're getting these, amazing travel experiences all over the world. It's hard to write something that doesn't have that, at least in the background. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think if you look at it from a certain perspective, like travel is just an extension of anything else. It's living, but it's living in maybe a, a somewhat more dramatic or intense or, uh, purified, purified in the way that like fine grain alcohol is purified. Sure, it, sure. It's, it's like life in as a punch in the gut type of thing where it's wildly uncomfortable and somewhat dramatic and everything is somewhat more extreme version of what you would see otherwise. And so you tend to take very, uh, you tend to take shot glass portions of things as opposed to slowly sipping. That's a good way of putting it. The, uh, the vodka version of life versus the beer version. <laughs> exactly. And both are good. And ideally you get to experience both. Um, but yeah, you definitely get a more, um, refined in, in terms of it being more intense version of things. And that definitely tends to in, inform the way that you work and, and the type of work that you do. Absolutely. What are the, if anyone just happens to come to mind, any particular writers, fiction or nonfiction travel or otherwise who particularly inspire you, who you particularly admire? Uh, you know, not too many travel writers. I know, uh, not that they're not good. It's just not the, the type of writing that I tend to do, but John Krakauer is really good. I, Absolutely. I enjoy that type of journalistic nonfiction that is very narrative, um, like into thin air under the banner of heaven. Those, those were he very interesting into books. The wild? Yeah. Yeah. He did that one as well. Not my favorite of his, but his, sure. his most famous, um, and like John Ronson too, I really enjoy. He, he's done some crazy stuff that's along the same vein, but they both have very distinctive voices, even though they're both kind of journalistic nonfiction writers that have a good deal of narrative. Do you have a journalistic approach whenever you travel? Do you go somewhere and think, I want to figure out this thing about this place? Probably not so, not specifically, but I think that's probably how I operate. I, I don't go into the place and say, I really want to figure this out, but I do spend a great deal of my time trying to solve puzzles. And usually they're just truly random things that for some reason I notice and then I need to figure out why it works that way. It'll be something stupid about the way the grocery store takes money and then puts it in this drawer. And I'm like, well, why does it go there? What, where is that going? And then I need to figure it out by the time I leave. And there's, there's just thousands of those things throughout, you know, each and every day. And, and so it's this really crazy collection of useless knowledge that I end up with. But every once in a while, some of those pieces connect to other pieces and I'm able to put together kind of a bigger picture. Okay. So when you notice one of these things, like why did they put the money over here? Is this related to what I saw in Switzerland, even though I'm now in the Philippines? How do you follow this up? Do you talk to local people? Do you have a process? 
not just one process, but I, I have gotten very brazen just in terms of talking to people and being very comfortable with my ignorance. I think that's one of the most valuable things about travel is that if you do it long enough, you get very comfortable with always being the most ignorant person in the room. And if you can embrace that, then it's liberating because you're not expected to know anything. And that means that you can just be ignorant in public to everyone and they will fill you in. They'll tell you all kinds of stuff. And some of it you might know and it might be embarrassing because they'll treat you like a child. But children learn fast for a reason, you know? And if you're willing to to show that, to show that not only do you not know these things yet, but you want to learn and you are asking them to teach you, then typically you can pick stuff up just crazy fast compared to your own culture where you're expected to know certain things and you're a little bit embarrassed to ask at that point because you're, you're a grown-ass adult and that's not what people do when they're trying to be a grown-ass adult and a professional of some kind. Right. So traveling means you notice the things you wouldn't notice at home, but it also gives you permission to ask the questions that you'd be too embarrassed to ask at home. That wouldn't even occur to Exactly. You yeah, yeah, exactly. And in a lot of cases, too, I think, like mentioning before, or like I mentioned before, if you do the same thing long enough, you tend to go on autopilot. And I find this a lot when I visit people. It gives them an excuse to kind of see their city as a tourist because they're seeing it through my eyes and I'm looking for these things. And we'll find that uh, – and, and I do the same thing when I return to places that I, I lived in my former life. Um, there's all these – like a street just like three blocks away that you never go down. For no particular reason, it's just that your business never took you that way. It doesn't go to school or to work. You don't know anybody who lives there. But that street could have anything on it. There could be, you know, you could learn something amazing, meet somebody down there who becomes your best friend. You could have a life-changing experience, or it could be the same street as all of the other streets. But regardless, there's all of this data and all these potential paths that are just sitting there in our everyday lives. And we don't we are not incentivized to check these things out and follow these strands we don't necessarily have the time to do it or the the uh encouragement from society to do it uh but very often too we're just we kind of fall into a somewhat lazy path in terms of data gathering and being on the road removes that to a certain degree like i, I don't think many people who who do that just out of habit, like continuously, uh, end up traveling for very long because I can't imagine they would get much value out of it. That's interesting. So forgive me if I misunderstood, but, but those who are naturally not curious, but naturally quite investigative when they're at home, wouldn't need to be motivated to go overseas. Did I get that the wrong way around? Uh, I was saying it the opposite direction, but sure, I think yeah, that's, that's really true too. I, I mean, I, I often tell people that, I mean, you can learn different things, obviously, by going overseas, but I think there's just as, as much in a lot of ways in our own environment that if you can't afford to travel or you don't want to travel, I, I know plenty of people who are very intuitive, intelligent, interested people who just don't enjoy the downsides of travel, which is a lot of discomfort and a lot of newness all the time. And that if that's not your thing, you can just kind of train yourself to be more aware and get a lot of novelty and a lot of new experiences and a lot of uh, new knowledge that other people are not extracting from their environment. You can get that from your environment. But I, I think it's a lot more difficult. I think travel force feeds it to you. And I think to get something that approximates that in your more comfortable, familiar, everyday life. You have to really work your ass off. 
totally. So I had a, got what you were saying upside down, probably because I'm in the Southern Hemisphere. But I do, uh, <laughs> I do, do absolutely agree. And I see your point from both angles. Um, when you are traveling and because you've, you've got a business to run, you've got writing to do, how do you deal with all these um, discomforts that you have? I've got a deadline tomorrow, but I've got to take a 24-hour train without internet. <laughs> I'm very careful with what I commit to. Sure. That's that's the long and the short of it. When when I started traveling, I still had clients. I, I ran a branding studio out in LA and I was still doing brand consultations for some of my clients when I was traveling in Argentina and New Zealand. And that was what made me realize that I would have to be more careful because New Zealand, as you know, is like time zones away from everything else. And it's something like 13 or 16 time zones from LA. It's absolutely insane. Yeah, and that on top of the internet issues I was having, I, I simply couldn't do my work, not in the way that I would want to for my clients. And as a result now, everything that I do tends to be kind of encapsulated just with me. I, I can do it. I don't have a hardcore deadline. Every once in a while I do with uh, with Asymmetrical Press, the, the business that I co-founded with a couple of other authors. But even that, I can either hand it off or we can reset the deadline I try to make sure that I don't have conflicts so that I can go into travel and enjoy the travel without the outside world impugning itself on me. Sure. When you show up somewhere as a traveler, you're, do you normally do your research? You say you don't do a great deal of research before you travel, but do you normally try and put into place a network there or do you just show up, figure it out when you're on the ground? Well, typically when I'm going to be there for several months, I, I don't like to do almost any research or, or set up a network. I read the Wikipedia entry <laughs> for the place sure, that I'm going. Sure. Um, so I know the bare basics, but that's it. And everything else I like to learn on the ground. That way I don't have any, or as few as possible, biases and prejudices. I don't have any expectations. I can let people and the location be what it actually is rather than filtering it through my expectations of it. Um, but when, when I go to a place, um, and I, I'm only going to be there for a couple of days, then I do, I'll get like an Airbnb or I'll get a hostel or whatever the, the situation might call for. And if I have readers on the ground there, then I'll, I'll tweet out, Hey, anybody want to grab a coffee? That way I have some people already there that I can talk to and we can meet up and we can exchange hugs and I can extract some knowledge from them too. That's, that's the, the way that I tend to look at it. You know, finding somebody who will willingly tell me all the things that I want to know and I can ask them weird ass questions and that they'll be fine with it because they, they know my writing and they know who I, how I am with wanting to know weird things. And I can get as much as possible out of a very, uh, a very short period of time that I'll be there. Sure. So the longer you're going to be somewhere, the less preparation you actually do. Exactly. Yeah. Because then, then I know too, I get to have that adventure where there, there's nothing in the world that I've experienced, like the challenge of arriving at an airport in an unfamiliar place and not having anything. You have no home, you have no connections, you don't speak the language. And then each step of the way is an adventure and a challenge to overcome. So you have to find a taxi, get to the center of town. You have to find a place to set up so you can get Wi-Fi. Maybe you can find a local Craigslist or find a Facebook group that has rentals. You'll walk around downtown. You'll look around the area that you want to live in, try to find a place to rent. Over the course of the next day or two, you'll find a place to rent, negotiate to rent it for four months, and then you'll figure out how to transfer the payment, uh, maybe stay in a hostel for a few nights. And then once you get it set up, you need to maybe get a bed if it's not already furnished. And slowly over the course of about a week, you make a life for yourself from scratch. And then once you've made it, 
you just get to live it. And to me, that's an immensely satisfying process, immensely frustrating and difficult at times. But it's something I've gotten pretty good at. And I've really learned to enjoy that thrill of not knowing if I'll be able to make it work this time. Love it. Thanks so much, Colin. I think that's a good place to end the interview. I'm right there with you in that um, that airport description. I'm looking forward to getting back out and trying that myself. Um, just final question. Do you know where you're off to next? Uh, that That is a very good question. I Well, there's a lot of different ways to take it. I'm exploring lots of new opportunities. Uh, physically, I'll be going to London uh, for most of June, uh, and then I'll be coming back to the U.S., taking a quick trip to Roswell, New Mexico for an alien parade, Sounds and fun. then going, yeah, and then going to Montana, I think, for a couple of months. Okay. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Colin. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.